This is Jeremy Asbrot from the Rock and Roll Residency, Ace Fraley Band, Gene Simmons Band, John Karabi Band, and many others. And you are listening to Cheap Talk. It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. That's right. Your podcast about one of the greatest bands in the world. And as usual, I'm joined by Brian Cramp. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Hello there, ladies and gents. Today we are talking about one of my favorite albums of all time, one of Brian Cramp's favorite albums of all time, one of your favorite albums of all time, and Jeremy Asbrock's, one of his favorite albums of all time. Welcome to Cheap Talk, Jeremy Asbrock. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Cheap Talk, sir. And we should let people know that this is the first part of a trilogy that we're doing. You are a member of so many bands. You are a member of the Gene Simmons Band, the Ace Fraley Band, and the Rock and Roll Residency, and probably 500 other ones that, that we could name. But we're doing a trilogy that will have Ryan Spencer Cook and Phil Schouse covering In Color and Heaven Tonight. And you are taking Cheap Trick's debut album. Yes, I am. Tell us a little bit about your musical background and your musical history, and then we'll talk about your cheap trick history. You know how there's history? Well, there's cheap trick history. So, <laughs> Okay, well, my biggest tie to cheap trick is uh, I played in a band called the Shazam for 15 years, and for five years prior to that, I was just like head cheerleader, band best friend, because they were my favorite band, and the band is... Uh, extremely influenced by cheap trick it was you know a very cheap trick heavy type vibe beatles the move and you know all the bands that cheap trick was influenced by so i mean they they figure very very heavily into my musical history you know just with kind of the blending of pop music and and hard rock and I also see that you and Phil Schaus have done a little Cheap Trick cosplay. There's a picture of you as Rick Nielsen, and Phil's yes. in the, uh, I'm going to say the Heaven Tonight kind of looking Robin Zander, if you will. Yes, uh, it's called the Rockford Files, uh, P-H-I-L-E-S, you know, like as yeah. an audio file. Uh, Phil, of course, gets all the credit for that because uh, he's Mr. Pun. Uh, you know those shows are a lot of fun and uh there's just no way to feel cool dressed like that other than you know the music that you're playing (laughs) (laughs) so good on rick nails good on rick nielsen for you know being able to pull that off because he certainly is cool yeah jeremy were you in the shazam in 98 uh 98 is when we started making Godspeed the Shazam and I was added as the guitar player shortly actually January 99 was my first show with them oh, but okay. in 98 if there was a show that you saw I would have been there because I, I traveled with them and you know I was, like I said I was band best friend roadie head cheerleader yeah that was my intro to the Shazam as I went to see Daniel Johnston played at the Electric Lounge during South by Southwest. And when we got there, the Shazam were playing outside on a stage, like right out front of the club. 
And I was like, holy shit, who is this band? <laughs> and then I bought the CDs after that. So I was just wondering if you were there. Uh, I was there, but I was not playing. Right, right. Fantastic. Now, let's you know set the stage. Tell the folks a little bit about the Rock and Roll Residency and explain how your career is that you're kind of a gun for hire, right? Uh, yeah, you know, that wasn't always the plan. Like I said, I, I was playing in the Shazam and I just kind of always thought I'd make it playing in a band and being in a band. Uh, the rock and roll residency was a super happy accident. Uh, up until that point, Philip and I had a few tribute bands in town and this was before tribute bands were even really a thing. And they were all really just about fun and, and playing, you know, all the stuff that we were listening to at his house. Because, man, we hung out for 10 years before we ever played a note together. And let's see, we had a tribute band for Kiss. We did one Aerosmith show. We had one for Thin Lizzy. Uh, I had an ACDC band with our friend Mangus, which Philip is a part of now. Um, God, who else? He, his metal at the Mercy shows were just kind of an which were an all-encompassing, you know, heavy metal, new wave of British heavy metal type thing. So there was uh, the month of April 2014, and one fun fact is the first residency show was six years ago today, April 8th. And let's see, up until, yeah, uh, that month of, 2014 he and i didn't really have anything going on and uh, i had an epiphany one day and i called him I'm like hey man maybe we should try a weekly thing in april what do you think he's like yeah you know what where should we go and there was a pub called dan mcginnis which was right at the music row roundabout and i'd seen a residency there and that was where i met my wife hannah so i knew they were open to the idea of having weekly things there so we went there and talked to the bar manager, and when we finished, he's like, I know who you guys are, and I think that's a great idea. And, you know, we did it for a month, and then they asked us to stay indefinitely, and Philip was playing with a country artist named Rodney Atkins at the time, and said, well, you know, we may have a few holes because of that, but, you know, we'll, we'll just work around it. And then that lasted there for three years and then due to noise complaints we had to move it to the mercy lounge which i guess was okay because the show had grown and you know we needed space for more people anyway and did it there for another two years until our tour schedules made it just too hard to do a weekly thing anymore and i mean i i never could have anticipated everything that happened as a result of that and all the people that we got to play with that were our heroes and, you know, Robin Zander being one of them. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, from what I understand, Dax and Robin sat in one night, right? Uh, two nights, actually. Uh, the, the month of February, let's see, that was 2016. The month of February was just fucking amazing. So, uh, Robin just showed up with Dax and honestly, man, he was a little, he, he was about half in the bag. He he had a good buzz on, and I don't think I'm blowing the whistle because he said something from the stage. Uh, he showed up, and and you know our friend Mangus 
kind of knew him a little bit and had been bugging him for, you know, a year or two to come out sometime. And he finally made it that time. And it's like, Hey man, you want to do something? And he's like, yeah, let's do long way to the top. And it's like, all right, that's cool. Can we do a cheap trick song? And he's like, yeah, what do you want to do? And I was like, how about hot love? And he's like, I know that one. So we did long way to the top and man, he destroyed it. It was just so awesome. And then we did hot love and got done with that. And then I looked at Dax and just mouthed, he's a whore. And he started, he's a whore and hot love. And he's a whore are my two favorite cheap trick songs. So, you know, getting to do that song with those guys was, man, that, that was a musical highlight even. Amazing. But if I want to go on about the month of February, uh, you know, deep purple were in town making a record and Don Airy and Roger Glover came out for the next two weeks and played with us. And, uh, one of those is on my birthday because my birthday's in February. And then the next week, after those two weeks, Robin came back out again and brought his son. And, you know, we did some more tunes. <laughs> that was a good month in, in, in residency history. That is amazing. And then you got to actually perform on stage with Cheap Trick, you and Ryan and uh, Phil and, and yourself doing background vocals for Cheap Trick Live. Yeah, so uh, I'd have one more run-in with Robin. Uh, he came out to our friend Stacy Collins' record release show, so I got to see him again. So, you know, he kind of knew me by then, and he knew Philip and Ryan also. So, yeah, he invited us to come up and sing back up on, uh, oh, what's the, it was uh, off their new album. It had the word long in it, long time coming, long way. Yeah, long, long time coming. Yeah. Very good. Fantastic. So you've got some really cool personal Cheap Trick stories. Those are fantastic. Today we're going to talk about Cheap Trick's 1977 album and uh, where it all kicks off. It's such a dark album, so much different than a lot of stuff that was to follow, right? Like it's, yeah. it's weird to think that this band wound up being featured in 16 magazine right we're singing songs about daddy should have stayed in high school and you know ballad of you know everything that they were doing on that album and then they're in 16 magazine so it was just a weird shift in dichotomy right yeah i mean the idea of rick nielsen and buddy carlos being in 16 magazine is hilarious to me <laughs> it's so cool we are so glad to have you here. As we mentioned, today we are talking about Cheap Trick's 1977 album, Cheap Trick. It was released in February 1977. It was released under Epic Records and produced by the great Jack Douglas. And the album did not reach the Billboard 200 chart, but did bubble under at number 207 for one week in April of 1977. The album was recorded in 1976. The album is 40 minutes in length, and we will talk a lot longer than that, I'm sure. This album was also recorded at the famous record plant in New York City. So, Jeremy, tell us how you found this album and what it means to you, and then we'll go track by track. You know, I was familiar with Cheap Trick and, uh, you know, their... So some of their hits and, and videos that were on MTV at the time, but I, I discovered the first album because of Hans from the Shazam. It was his favorite band, so I told him, like, well, man, make, make me a compilation of the good stuff I should know, and it was real heavy on the first album. And, you know, my two favorite Cheap Trick albums are the first album and All Shook Up, and 
one reason I lean on the first album is because it, it's got a lot of teeth. You mm. know, it, it's it's a little grittier, and you know, it's not as pop as the Tom Werman albums, even though they have more hits. You know, the better versions of those songs are on Budokan. Mm-hmm. We're going to kick off our discussion on Cheap Trick's 1977 album. And do you have a track preference, Jeremy? No. Where does your album start for Cheap Trick 1977? Hot Love. I mean, what an awesome album opener you know i know that they did their version on the cd release in 98 but you know that wouldn't be the first time a band is wrong about their own their own calls (laughs) i've always thought that the album should end with the battle of tv violence however you get to there that's where that should end but on the other hand oh candy also works so brian where do you come down on it well this is a it's a loaded question you know, by all indications to anyone familiar with how record albums worked, Hot Love was the first song from 1977 until 1998. And no one would have thought otherwise. No one would have had any reason to think otherwise. You look at the back cover of the album, you look at the record, you look at the cassette tape that came out that said side one and side two with Hot Love on side one. You look at the A track where Hot, Hot Love was the first song. There was no reason for any person on earth to think that Hot Love wasn't the first song until the CD came out in 1998. Uh-huh. Now, <clears throat> what the band initially intended is another story, but it doesn't matter because there was no reason for anyone who bought that record to think Hot Love wasn't the first song. So it was the first song for 21 years, and... I don't know how you could just change that, you know. <laughs> Everyone who was listening to that record before 1998, I don't know how they didn't think Hot Love was the first song. So, yeah, Hot Love will always be the first song to me because that's I, I just sort of feel was. like the uh, the the pacing of the album it, with with side A being the true first side, like Hot Love, Speak Now, He's a Whore, Manicello, like that's good pacing. Mm-hmm. for an album like if you flip it around the other way it it you know i I love those songs a whole lot but as far as like in an album context particularly your debut album where people are hearing you for the first time i sort of feel like side a is a stronger side for an introduction to a band sure yeah but it, it also makes sense to have hello kitties be the first song that makes perfect sense and it also makes perfect sense for a ballad of TV violence to be the last song. But if you look at the back cover, hot love is the first song <laughs> here. I mean, there's no, if you bought that record in 1977, you flipped it over. You think hot love is the first song. No one would have thought otherwise. Well, I remember uh, cracking up and when I first saw it, because when I pulled it out, you know, you'd see side a, and then you flip it over and you'd see side one and it just cracked me up. And uh, yeah. I, I always yeah. loved their little phrase that there is no B material right. with Cheap Trick, right? So Yeah. <laughs> and every, every song on this album is just stellar. So if you're looking for a bad review, you're not going to find it from me here. So let's go track by track. Let's kick off Hot Love.
Asbrock, your thoughts on hot love? Uh, well, you know, when Robin Zander himself said, you know, sure, we can do a cheap trick song. What do you want to do? I want to do hot love. <laughs> That's just one of my favorite cheap trick songs, man. It's, it's fifth gear. I mean, what, what a great song to, to kick off your, your, your professional career, like, you know, as a major label recording act and it's super melodic, you know, when you get to the chorus, I love it one of my favorites and it's so damn good this song has everything that we love about cheap trick right Mm. it's got rick's quirkiness we've got uh everything from the powering bass to the fantastic drums rick's weird quirkiness and robin being everything from a heartthrob to a psycho and this is everything i love about cheap trick wrapped up in one tiny little pill brian your thoughts on hot love yeah exactly this is everything that's great about cheap trick in one song and you know it's this is 1977 recorded in 1976 and you think about the context of this song it's it's kind of a punk rock song it's a hard rock song it's it's how cheap tricks straddled those genres you know Mm -hmm. somebody hearing this song in 1977 where do you place it you know is it it's it's not really like kiss or aerosmith but it's not quite the Sex Pistols, but it's somewhere in between, you know? Yeah, agreed. Fantastic track. Let's move on to track two, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, written by Terry Reed. Asbrock, your thoughts on Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace? A shining example of how the bass guitar could be the rhythm guitar, you know, up until that point, you know what, they had John Entwistle, who was like lead bass, and, you know, the bass was always just the bass guitar, and, you know, I I think Tom Peterson is sort of the next John Entwistle to where, you know, the bass can be out front, and uh, the the eight-string bass was not part of the deal i'm pretty sure that uh he used a, a thunderbird bass on this whole record and that was like the sound yeah and also like this song turned me on to terry reed you know I, I didn't really know a lot about him and i bought one of his records based on this song and and kind of got into him and learned about his history as well and, and the way the song ends and just kind of fades into the next song man super cool Mm-hmm. Brian Cramp, your thoughts? Yeah, this is a brilliant cover because 
even though I like the original, this is so much better than the original. You know, and it this is a perfect example of a band taking a song and making it their own and, and making it sound like them. So this sounds like a cheap trick song. And when you hear the original, you hear the song there, but this is such a different take on it. And it's so it's so guitar heavy, but yeah, the also the bass is so amazing. And of course Robin's vocal is just astonishing, you know. So the the melody of the song, Robin just really you know improves on it so much and uh yeah it's an amazing cover and i love the uh attitude swagger and the build-up as it goes and again we're you know one of the things that we often talk about on this show is how robin can go from like this crooner guy to a psychopath just like that and you see this build-up to where he's a frustrated young man on the edge right and vocally he is such a great actor uh he he can inhabit a song like nobody else it's he's just amazing but that uh as as someone who has wound up playing bass nine times out of ten in a band because it's it's kind of like softball rules right everybody wants to be the lead guitar player nobody wants to play you know shortstop so which is the bass. So you, you learn to make the bass your thing. So hearing Tom Peterson on this album, it just shows what a bass player can and should do. And what he does here set him so far apart from so many other bass players. I cannot speak enough about my admiration for Tom Peterson as a bass player. It's just fantastic. And the drum sound, this is pretty much the exact same drum sound that we have on Gonna Raise Hell Later. Have you ever thought about it like that? Uh, Man, the drum sound is another reason uh, this one is my favorite Cheap Trick album. Like I said, I was talking about grit and punch and having teeth. I thought these drums sounded better than the Tom Werman records. I uh, I thought he dialed it back kind of wimped out the drums a little bit and you know and they're super fucking punchy on this album mm-hmm. yeah just fantastic great great song and uh you know again this is gonna be a one note kind of pony for us i don't think anybody's gonna give anything a bad review off this but you've got this hot love which bleeds right into speak now and then we're following up with one of the greatest songs in the entire Cheap Trick catalog, as far as I'm concerned. It's got energy. It's got everything you want from a Cheap Trick song. Sick lyrics. Fantastic. He's a horde.
Jeremy Asbrock, your thoughts on He's a Whore. This is the song that took me from casual cheap trick fan to big cheap trick fan. Uh, I saw them play on Riverfront downtown Nashville in 1993 and uh, woke up with a monster had just come out. So they opened the show with my gang. And, you know, I, that, that was that was around the time I started hanging out with people from the Shazam and, you know, getting introduced to cheap trick album tracks. And He's a Whore was the second song. It's like, man, what the fuck is this song? I love this song. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier I had Hans make me a collection of, of cheap trick stuff I should know. And I just told like, make sure that He's a Whore song is on there. And, you know, <laughs> of, of, of course it was. And, you know, I mean, you, you ask me, like, Two songs you can jam with Robin Zander. What's it going to be? Hot Love and He's a Whore. So, you know, I'd mentioned when we jammed with Robin, you know, uh, it, we got through with the two that he approved. I looked at Dax and just mouthed, he's a whore. And he started it. And, you know, if he starts it, then we got to finish it. Wow. And two, cool, man. I mean, to hear that guy right next to me singing the song, it was truly a career highlight of mine. And, I love the way the song starts when Speak Now is fading out. And it's the same thing that you said, Brian. It's like, it's it's punk, but it's not punk. It's power pop, but it's not power pop. Like, it, it straddles the line of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Brian, your thoughts on He's a Whore. Yeah, I've described Rick Nielsen's songwriting as fearless, but I think it's just, uh, he didn't care. He just came up with what he came up with. He wasn't trying to be anything. He wasn't trying to fit in anywhere. He was just writing whatever he wrote. And it was so inspired. And, you know, this song goes back to at least 75. Picture this song in 1975, and it's not like anything else. And so it's almost like rock and roll caught up to Cheap Trick because by 77, this song is starting to sound more like what's coming out you know but back when he first wrote it what the hell was he doing you know he was just doing whatever the hell he felt like he i mean he obviously wasn't trying to these songs that he was writing he wasn't trying to write anything commercial that's for sure right you know he he didn't have any kind of um intentions like that and so he you know because Rick had been slogging it out for a long time, and he, and he made his way to where, I don't know what it was that inspired him to start writing these songs. Because this is a really early Cheap Trick song, and uh, I don't know how he found this. He found it, you know. He found it, and he went with it. Whatever, you know, because he had a a huge burst of songs, you know. So that by the time they made this record, they had a lot of songs to choose from. And it's because Rick just wrote, just in a couple years, he wrote a lot of songs. So he obviously was inspired. And so you get a song like this that, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, we've said a lot in this show, you either get it or you don't. And this is a perfect example. It's like, if you, if you love this song, you love this song, you know, you love this band because this is, because this is so special. But if you don't get it, then, you know, you're lost, but yeah, I mean, this is pretty much the ultimate cheap trick song, really, right? Agreed, yes. 
I think so in many ways. I, I, I totally agree with that. And if you see the old Night Gallery video, uh, <laughs> the song is amplified by Rick's performance in that back and forth between him and Robin. And I love when he's reaching out like he's trying to grab Robin from his side of the stage. And it's just fantastic video to like perform the song and just great song. Like you said, Brian, I think it may be the ultimate cheap trick song in many ways. Which brings us to track four, Mandicello. Jeremy Asbrock, your thoughts on Mandicello? I think first it, it's worth pointing out that there has not been like a guitar hero type solo on this record, but it's all about the tune. And so I think on this, like by here, you see how versatile of a singer Robin Zander is because like seconds earlier, you're hearing him scream his balls off, you know, I'm a whore, I'm a whore. And now it's just like a, a beautiful songbird type voice i've done this song live a couple times i've had two different cheap trick tribute bands i've got the one with phil and you know if there were any shows that would be the one that performed but there was a a venue in town called the family wash and i had one with the owner of that venue and and tom peterson even played with us one time he he did a song with us yeah because him and tom are really really good friends and that one was it was mainly on halloween it was called cheap trick or treat So I'd done Mandicello with them, and yeah, man, it's like the ultimate ballad. Agreed 100%. Brian, your thoughts on Mandicello? Yeah, well, what can you say? It's Again, I keep saying this, but what does this sound like? This doesn't sound like anything else. And this is the ballad on the record, right? But it's really, it's not a typical ballad in any way, you know? Right. And I I mean, I guess it really springs from Rick Nielsen messing around with the Mandicello. And so he comes up with, he's like, I'm going to write a song with this thing. <laughs> and then I'm going to name it after it, you know. Most people listening to this probably know the story of this song, how far back it goes. And and uh, I guess, you know, the reason that this song's on the record is probably Jack Douglas. I, I mean, I think that's the real reason. He probably wanted to have a mellow song or a ballad. And this is what he picked of out of what Rick had in his arsenal, which as far as ballads go, I don't think it was much. But uh you know, I always think that uh, a song like Can't Hold On sure would have fit really well <laughs> on this album and would have made it, made it even more amazing. 
not that I would want necessarily want to replace this song with Mandicello, but if you know if Jack Douglas was like, we need a ballad on this record, then this is the one that he picked out of what you know Rick came to the brought to the table. It's brilliant and amazing and also original and different, which is you know everything about this record, you know, considering the time these songs were written and everything. It's just original and different and amazing. I'm not sure Cheat Trick always lived up to the greatness of this song. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times ballads are easily dismissed, but this one again, like he's a horse says so much about what a cheap trick song is. I feel that Mandicello also is that same way. You know what I mean? Because it shows everything from the high highs that they could do to the low lows and just that beautiful lushness that abounds in it. Yet there's a feeling of heartache and longing that's in this song. Agreed? Yes, absolutely agreed. So it's, it's again, just, you know, what the hell was going on when they wrote this? You got to look, look back at the charts and... It might have been a bubblegum disco tune or whatever, you know, nothing against anything else, but it's just amazing that they were able to create this song. And to me, it still sounds as fresh today as it did the first time I heard it. And man, the, well, the thing about it not cracking the Billboard 200 is, honestly, as amazing as these tunes are, I, I can't really hear them on the radio. They don't... They don't sound no. like radio songs. And like this is a beautiful ballad, but it doesn't sound like a radio ballad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say in 1977, this was alternative rock. That's what this was. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, I, man, I, I agree with that 100%. And I've also said that, you know, in 1991, Sub Pop could have released this album and it would have sounded like it was a new band on Sub Pop. I swear, this is... This is an amazing record, especially considering the time that it was created and how unique it was, you know. There is really nothing quite like it. Let's go to track five, The Ballad of TV Violence, I'm Not the Only Boy. Brock, your thoughts on this one? 
Uh, well, I do agree with you that uh, this is that is the ultimate closer of the album, and I sort of feel like they could have swapped "O oh Candy" and the Ballad of TV Violence, and and it, it would have helped the track listing a whole lot, and would have made side A the definitive first side because you know you're right that that is a great ending, and again you know with 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 Robin and his versatility, and you know from being a sweet songbird on Mandicello to, you know, the ending of that song and more screaming. I mean, the guy's range is pretty much the best in rock and roll. And when you think about it, we've already discussed that He's a Whore is the ultimate cheap trick song. Mandicello is a ultimate cheap trick ballad. And the ballad of TV violence is almost another kind of ultimate song because one of our things that brings us great joy is knowing that somewhere, whether Cheap Trick is playing, opening up for Rod Stewart or headlining somewhere, playing at a Dayton, Ohio rib fest, it, it, the night's probably going to end with Robin Zander screaming suicide, suicide, and things like yeah. that. <laughs> and, uh, and this is that kind of thing is present in this song, that manic craziness that Robin can bring to it brian your thoughts on the ballad of tv violence i'm not the only boy yeah this song is insane <laughs> and you know this it's it, there's a big difference from uh, a ba- a midwest rock band playing this song in a club to a couple hundred people or putting it on epic records with you know a three hundred thousand dollar promotional push of the new hot band and then you have a song that is this out there and this insane. It's just it's a it's a wacky song, especially considering the original title and and everything. And so, and you know they made them change the title for for obvious reasons. But it's uh, I mean I love this song. It's amazing and brilliant. And picturing, I mean people, it seems like when people tell stories of seeing Cheap Trick in the clubs, this is the song that stood out because it was fucking nuts. And also brilliant and amazing. So you picture a band in 75, you know, you go see a band you never heard of. And, and then this is what you get. It, it yeah. was see. It was, it was insane. Oh, and also brilliant, you know. You alluded to the original title. Would you like to tell us what that was? Yeah, The Ballad of Richard Speck, which anyone who knows the story of Richard Speck, it's... It's horrific and nightmarish, and so it makes sense that they wanted them to change the title. And I don't know what the hell, what the hell Rick Nielsen was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's like I say, he certainly had no like aspirations of getting on the radio, writing this song and calling it the Ballad of Richard Speck. He was just and doing whatever he- the hell he felt like. And man, like, you know, the A&R man who, who signed them deserves a medal because, I mean, the the subject matter of their songs is like the furthest thing from hits that you can possibly get. And they still went along with it, which, you know, goes to show what things were like in the 70s versus, you know, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen a couple of interviews from the last few years where Tom Peterson will say stuff about how the record company didn't get them that wanted them to change their image, stuff like that. He'll say, and that is so untrue. The record company 
invested all the promo they put a lot of promotion behind this first record and they invested all of it into the image and the like the marketing department at epic records really loved working with cheap trick because they were so different and unique and fun and so yeah the record company did get behind them and I mean, they, they asked them to change the name of this song, but that's all they asked them to change, you know? Yeah, but that's one of those situations where I feel two things can be true at the same time, right? On one hand, when they first started out their relationship, it was like, oh, this is this is what, you know, we, we are digging what you're doing, right? But then as Cheap Trick progressed, the record companies became handlers and tried to get them to write certain things or use outside songwriters and stuff like that. So I think it's kind of like a miss. Well, that's a mishmash. way later, but yeah. yeah. But, but I think that that's what he's really talking about is how that became the standard eventually. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think it's a case of those two things can both be true. Well, yeah, the record, the record company interfered later. But I yeah. get the. But I think he was talking about when they were first signed. I've seen him talk about when they were first signed, you know. Right, but but that's the thing about memories. You know what I mean? Jeremy said the A and R guy who signed them deserves a medal. That was Tom Werman. <laughs> yeah. So that's right. <laughs> Fantastic. So we're going to flip the album over, and again, it's weird to think about these guys being uh, Teen Dreams and Tiger Beat and Sixteen Magazine, because <laughs> now we're into really bad territory. Anyone that thought that the Ballad of TV Violence was weird, we flipped the album over, and now we've got someone wanting to poison kitties in the schoolyard, so let's kick off L.O. Kitties. so subversive that only alice cooper wished he could have written this right i mean just imagine that <laughs> it's the only artist that almost makes sense that could have done something like that uh jeremy your thoughts on Hello kitties it's kind of funny like post i want you to want me when they became you know like a, a teenage type band you know like you said 16 magazine and stuff that w with lyrics like this it's just hard to imagine a, a teenager even getting that, but uh, you know, it, it's a great side opener. It sounds like an opener. I don't think it sounds like a debut album side one track one opener. That's why I kind of stand by the decision of Hot Love being the first song of the first side. So this would be like the ultimate second side song because it does sound like it opens something. But yeah, those are some insane lyrics, and it's hard to imagine a teenager digging into that 
But that was the 70s, right? I mean, it was yeah. weird because you had Little House on the Prairie and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You had <laughs> The Muppet Show and the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So it was a weird time. You had all these weird things going on at the same time culturally. And it was such an interesting time to grow up. But man, the song is super catchy, too. I mean, just the it melody is. at the beginning. I mean, you know. That definitely will get stuck in your head. It's the happiest song about killing children that's <laughs> yeah. ever existed, I think. I mean, God, we sound like maniacs. And of course, uh, L.O. Kitties is E.L.O. Kitties. That was probably a nod to E.L.O. Uh, from Rick. Brian, your thoughts on L.O. Kitties? Yeah, this is Rick Nielsen's take on glam rock, and I just came up with this. This is scary glitter. <laughs> scary <Yeah>. glitter. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with what they call junk shop glam, but this is like, to me, the ultimate junk shop glam song. It's uh, if if you hear, there's a song called "Rebels Rule" by Iron Virgin, mm-hmm. and then this song fits right in with that kind of stuff. To, because glam rock was so huge in Europe, then you had just tons of one-off bands, one and done with, with singles and stuff, and that's the kind of song this is. But it's also you know, infused with that Rick Nielsen cheap trick essence. But it's really a glam rock song, you know, a 70s glam rock song. So I love it because I, I love 70s glam rock. And then you combine that with cheap trick and it's it's amazing. And it's, you know, just another example of you get all different kinds of genres and styles on this album. And it uh, kind of predicted some of what would come in the future. I mean, you know, every once in a while I'll meet someone who's like, you've got to listen to this. And I don't think that they can even understand the depth of how it hit us back in the 70s. You know what I'm saying? They, uh, so much has happened since then that it doesn't seem as uh, harsh. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem as crazy because of the world we live in. But at the time, it was like, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, for me, I didn't I didn't get into this album until the early 90s. And and, yeah. and honestly, uh, I, I don't even know if 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 I would have been able to latch on if this would have been the first cheap trick stuff I heard, because, mm. you know, I grew up with all of their st- MTV videos and and, you know, I knew I want you to want me and surrender and stuff they were already cheap trick in air quotes by that time yeah and i mean they were already you know working with outside riders and kind of chasing a hit more than they were their weirdness luckily like when i really got into them that's when the box set came out and when they reconnected with their weirdness and decided to just be cheap trick and you know fuck major labels and fuck trying to fit in so I really got into them at a great time also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the same for me, the same time frame. And I remember, I've talked about this before, I think it, well, we, Ryan McKay from Shabby Road Record Show had the same story of, yeah, you're, you're familiar with like Budokan and Dream Police. And then, so then when you hear this record, it's a revelation and you realize there's a lot more to this band than I understood Mm-hmm. You know, when you hear when you're already familiar with some of the later stuff and you hear this album, you're not expecting it. And you're like, holy shit, this is the coolest band ever. I had no idea, you know. Well, 
This album was handed to me in 1977 by a woman named Karen. I was watching her kids and she said, I know you love the Beatles and really cool music. I think you're really going to like this. And she went to work watching the kids and I'm sitting there listening to this and it's like, oh my God, what is going on here? So I blame Cheap Trick. I blame Alice Cooper. I blame Kiss. I blame Black Sabbath. Those guys really messed up with my head, you know, Bowie, <laughs> all those great influences. But I was 15 the first time I heard this album and what an amazing album. Wow, there's just so much you can say about this track. It, it works live. The band still does it sometimes. Let's go on to the second track, Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School. stayed in high school again hard to believe that this wound up in 16 magazine you know so we've got a song about uh, mass murder uh, schoolyard poisonings and now a creep who is uh, grooving on younger girls daddy should have stayed in high school your thoughts jeremy uh so you know i love every song on this album but if i had to pick the weakest song on the album i would probably pick this one and it's also the reason i think side a is the definitive first side because i don't think that this is as strong of a second song as speak now uh in, in fact you know I, I know lookout was you know around the same time and you know they probably could have used lookout and instead of this song and you know, I, I might be okay with that. I dig it, but if, if, and this is only if, I had to pick a least favorite song on the album, this would probably be it. I always found for such a dark song with uh, such dark subject matter, then every once in a while you get those Beatle claps, that Beatle moment, you know what I'm talking about? I might even be your daddy, and then... Reeling and a rock in that part. Reeling and a rocket, rolling yeah. to the. You know, it, it it all of a sudden turns into this pop song for just a few seconds and then dives right back into the madness. Brian, your thoughts on Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School? Yeah, well, as you know, Ken, <laughs> I there's a lot of stuff I'm kind of holding back from my book that I could talk about. 
especially talking about this record. Uh, so I don't know how much I want to say about this uh, song, but one thing I could say is I think now it's you know uh, Rick had written Mandicello before this, but he didn't write that as a cheap trick song. As far as Rick writing for Cheap Trick, this is the first or second song he wrote in this entity for this band. You know, this is one of the earliest songs. They did this with Zeno. And so it was one of their oldest songs. And this is another one. This is on the record because Jack Douglas picked it to be on the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Jeremy said, it's the weakest link. I, I couldn't say what the weakest song is on this album because I love them all. And, you know, this is an, one of those amazing kind of records where it's not even about the individual songs. It's like, the it's just this album. And it's all just one thing to me. Like, I don't even... Like, I like all the songs pretty much almost equally. I mean, some of them are better than others, but it's it, it it's such a special album to me. But I could see saying that this is maybe... This is one of the worst songs, but saying one of these songs is one of the worst doesn't make a lot of sense because it's so great but um yeah what a what a weird ridiculous song but i love it and it's so odd and different and it's so infused with that rick nielsen (laughs) weirdness you know that i i mean you know he he kind of plays a character Right. When he's on stage, right? But doesn't it seem like that character is writing these songs? <laughs> it's like he's in character <laughs> when he's writing the songs. You know what I mean? So it's like the guy that you, the wacky guy that you see on stage back then is who wrote these songs, <laughs> not the guy, you know, not the, the guy married with children, you know. No, it was that weirdo. <laughs> in the bow tie and the hat that's that's who wrote these songs it's like he got in character to write the songs mm. that's what it that's what it feels like you could never really hear this song on lap of luxury think imagine that <laughs> how's that for mind-blowing yeah <laughs> just not a possibility so let's move on to track three on side one which is Taxman, mr thief
big Beatles homage in a way, right? Oh, completely. Yeah, and 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 I know you love you some Beatles. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I mean that was like the first thing, like Taxman, Mister Thief. Okay, I know where you got that title. Man, this is one of my favorites. One of my favorite. I mean, I put this in my top five cheap trick tunes. Uh, man, I, I love Robin when he starts screaming. He has one of the greatest screaming voices in rock. I mean, just from being being able to do it all, his scream is truly one of my favorites. There's a lot of screamy singers out there, but there's something super melodic about his scream. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to reviews at the time a lot of uh reviewers were would compare him to john lennon and that includes the john lennon who's able to sing imagine and in my life but also scream in cold turkey so <laughs> it's it's all that gamut right that's the whole thing and uh just fantastic vocalist can't say enough good about robin zander brian your thoughts on Taxman, mr thief yeah, it's an amazing song, and it was one of their one of their big songs in the clubs. And you know, it's brilliant. And that yeah, that little nod to the Beatles. It's so weird because I don't. I mean, especially with this on this album, there's not a lot of Beatles <laughs> to be on this record. And yeah. and even then, people were like, you know, referencing the Beatles when they were talking about Cheap Trick and. I don't know where I don't. I mean, I, obvi- you know, this song is an obvious homage to the Beatles, but it doesn't sound like the Beatles. And uh, I don't know where the reviewers at the time were getting the Beatles references besides this song. I mean, obviously, it comes out more later on with more of the poppier elements. But on but this record, you know, it's just out there and wild. So. Well, I, I can see what you're saying, but on the other hand, if you listen, I mean, there's parts of this album that I hear on, like, Abbey Road, for example, and I'm not talking about necessarily uh, the way that a song's performed, but there's a certain lushness that uh, a certain sheen or whatever that Rick can put on stuff that is very similar. And like I said earlier, the clap, you know, reeling and a rock and, you know, that part, right? So... I can see where there was enough of a Beatles pull to it, but then again, there's enough of a move pull to it and enough of Terry Reed's pull to it. And there's all these things that are in the stew, but it's uniquely cheap trick. So interesting that uh, Charles M. Young, who wrote for Rolling Stone, said that the album had a heavy emphasis on basics with a strain of demented violence and that the lyrics run the gamut of lust, confusion, and misogyny growing out of rejection and anti-authoritarian sentiments about school, all with an element of wit. That was one of the few times that I feel the, uh, though full of hyperbole, it's, uh, uh, it, it, they were on the money there. So, <laughs> yeah. But it's, 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 as this song has that famous cheap trick build, like a lot of cheap trick songs start out here. And as the song progresses, it builds and builds and builds this it's, it's evident in this song, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings us to track four, cry, cry.
written by Nielsen, Xander, and Tom Peterson. So, very yeah, good. Tom's only co-write on the whole album. Even though I, I sort of feel like the bass is the most present instrument on the album. At many times, yeah. And, uh, you know, for any Move fans out there, you know, that's kind of where they got that from, I think. I love Cry Cry. I mean, I, I still, like, I, I keep going back to side A being the definitive side. I sort of feel like it's a little stronger. I don't know. I, I don't really have a lot to comment about Cry Cry. I love the tune. It's a cheap trick playing the blues, right? But it, it sort of falls. It sort of falls in with like "Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School." For me, it's like I, I love the song. I don't hate any cheap trick songs, and I don't even skip over any cheap trick songs. But you know, if I got fifteen minutes to listen to this album, I'd probably go straight to "Oh Candy" after "Taxman." Mm. But saying that, like uh, for example, if almost all the songs on this album are a ten, and one of them is a nine point two. That's not slagging that individual song, right? It's just, right. by comparison, that's really how you have to look at it. Well, if there was anything really bogus on the album, I would not place it as my favorite Cheat Trick album. Right. So, there is that. Brian, your thoughts on Cry Cry? Yeah, I love it. And this is this is a great example of an amazing hook. Like, when you think of what a... When you talk about a hook in a song... It's like when it takes a, a sharp turn, you know? And so when you hit the chorus, don't you call me on the phone, you know, it's so melodic and it's such a sharp turn from, from the, how the verse of the song operates. So I love the hook on that. I love the chorus. I don't know if I had seen them do the rest of the songs from this album live. I probably had. So I remember when they did the three albums, three nights in you a row. You saw that? Yeah, and this was like the oh, man. this was like the most exciting thing because yeah, if I think about it, this is probably the only song from this album that I hadn't seen them do live. Maybe so I remember being like, "Holy shit, they're gonna do cry, cry," you know, because that was the one that you that they ha- I hadn't seen them do. I think so. I, I you know that comes to mind when I think about this song is remembering how that it was really exciting because <laughs> it seemed like you're never going to get to see this again you know even though you know they do they probably have pulled it out since at some point because they just throw stuff in at random times but uh you know earlier i spoke about how robin can inhabit a song or act out a song it's on full display here again he goes from heartbroken teen to psychotic person towards the end when they even reference uh elvis presley you know you'll be so lonely baby and the song takes a really dark disturbing thing there at the end and it fits in with the rest of the album you guys pick that up that's the overriding theme of the of this album for the most part is it's kind of dark most of it there's an Mm -hmm. element of and yeah and then you think about this song in 1977 it's like what the hell kind of song is this that's why i said it this is alternative rock because really yeah that's what it was it's like what the hell this is just i'm trying to imagine like some parent and you know they've got you know in 77 let's say they have a 15 year old kid who's getting into this where you know, two or three years prior to that, you know, you got a 12, 13 year old and they're probably listening to like David Cassidy or some shit <laughs> or like the that. Osmonds. And then, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then mom looks at these song titles, just like, what? <laughs> and then sees the guys on the front 
And I'm like, what is this band? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Amazing. That uh, that darkness is ever present. And up next, track five closes out the album, which is about a photographer friend of the band, Marshall Mintz, who committed suicide. Uh, he went by Eminem was his nickname, right? And uh, the song is called Oh Candy. It is one of the springiest sounding songs about suicide that there could ever possibly be. Jeremy, your thoughts on O Candy? Uh, it definitely doesn't sound like a song about suicide. <laughs> so, and yeah. uh, you, you know, I, I've never paid that much attention to the lyrics to where I could even like get that out of it. You know, I, I knew what the song is about, but you know, I kind of only know the words of the chorus. And I've played this in every Cheap Trick cover band I've been in. Uh, and man, if they could flip. TV violence and this song and the track listing, I, I really feel like it, it really, it, it'd be a little more perfect. Mm-hmm. Like you'd have like this sweet, not sweet, but like very melodic end to the first side where you could have this crazy angry end to the second side. I think it would have worked a little bit better, but, uh, man, candy sounds like, you know, a, a good single. Well, it was a single, wasn't it? it? That was one of the singles on the album. Am I right yeah, about was, that? Yeah, it was the first single. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it, it sounds like a single, but I can't hear it on the radio. No. Which is right. probably why, you know, it didn't really do anything. Like, this one, I think, could have been a single in 1972 or something. You know what I mean? Like, think think like the Raspberries or something like that. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, in 1977... I just can't pick this one as the single. But again, the Beatle thing is really present on this track. From that uh, guitar solo to the clap, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Just a great, great song. This song has a lot of punch live, too, man. It's a really good one live. I think it, I don't know, it has even more energy when they do it live. Yes, I agree. Brian, your thoughts on O Candy? Yeah, this is a great example of songwriting where a songwriter can write about something personal, but at the same time, you know, the the average person is going to just assume this song's about a girl named Candy, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And fine, you know, that's that could be your interpretation of it then. 
so Rick, he's writing about something very personal to himself, but it's not that obvious. So, you know, it's, it's open to interpretation of whoever's listening, and it's it's basically almost disguised, you know, in a way. So you just think it's a song, you know, it's a song about a girl, but it's really, you know, not. And and I love that. But, yeah, I, you know, thinking about this being the first single and you think, you know, Jack Douglas, one thing he didn't pay any attention to when he made this record was like delivering a single to the label. Yeah. You always hear about the label saying there's not a single on this record. Well, yeah, there's not no a shit. single on this record. <laughs> So, well, uh, that's probably why Tom Werman took over the next album. <laughs> yeah, you might be on to it. Yeah, Tom Werman was much more in the headspace of let's have some singles on here. It, Jack Douglas was, it seems to have paid no attention <laughs> to that at all, which is great. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's definitely a factor in why this is such a, a great record is that no, nobody involved was paying attention to trying to be commercial or mainstream in any way. It's weird because this album is not really represented on Budokan, right? This album is not really nope. referenced in a lot of what was to come later from Cheap Trick. Which is strange because if you listen to Budokan 2, you know, all of this, all of that stuff is on that. So that means like, mm-hmm. you know, it was played and yeah. Yeah, agreed. But it's weird because you try to think about your personal love of Cheap Trick, and if this album was erased from the history of the band, I don't think I'd feel half as much love as I do for the band if it weren't for this album. I feel right. the same way. Right. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, this is a very special record, and it definitely... Yeah, I mean, it's it's vital to the catalog it's a it's a big part of what makes them my favorite band so and i think it's sad because for some people you know like girls always get the short end of the stick when it comes to fandom we look at like uh journey fans for example this album could not have come from journey nothing against journey not attacking journey not saying anything bad about them but you always get the idea that, like, you know, there's some teenage girl out there who loved Cheap Trick at the time and that maybe never even listened to this, but she might really just love If You Want My Love, You've Got It, or Voices, or whatever the thing was. And that's not fair, you know, because I know that for so many people who truly love music, this album is a bedrock. It is an anchor. It is a foundation that without it, Cheap Trick, they just would have had some nice pop songs, right? No, man, I, I think about that scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High when uh, Damone's trying to sell that chick cheap trick tickets. He's like, have you forgot the charisma of Rick Nielsen or the magnetism of Robin Zander? And she's like, that's kid stuff. And it's like, what? <laughs> what? No, no, it's not. Because you did, you forgot about the first album, man. That's what Damone should have gave that girl instead of tickets. Should have handed her the first album. This is a record that came out of the clubs. You know, this is a club band. This it's like the first New York Dolls album or something. It's like this was developed in the clubs, in a small scene, and and it's I'm very grateful that they put that they, you know, that translated to a record that they got that on an album. What you know what this band was you know when they were a club band. That's what this record is and what they were capable. It's really special, yeah. And I I think the the record sounds good because. 
man, honestly, the next three albums, you know, the, the Worman records, I think suffer the same thing that Kiss albums suffer is that, you know, the studio sound was okay. But then when you hear the live versions of those songs, they're way better. And, you know, I, I think the Budokan versions of all the songs that came out on the next few albums sound better than the studio records. There's just not, there's no punch or grit. And this album has punch and grit in spades. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you for coming on to talk about your favorite cheap trick album. And, uh, it's, it's, it's got a really interesting history to it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't touched on at all is the photography was done by Jim Houghton and the cover design by Paula Shear and it's a great album cover from the back with the like it looks like the strips of the film on the back and mm-hmm. then that bio that was on the inside of the album and the front cover is just iconic and you've got everything with Cheap Trick has that little bit of weirdness to it right so there's that picture that they're holding, and it's a picture of Rick and Tom in that photo, right? What's going on in that, BJ? Where Rick has the accordion? Yes. Is that the, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it was just an early promo shot of Rick being a weirdo. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it, uh, it, it was just one of those things that, as a as a 15 year old, I'm looking at this, going, "What the hell's going on here?" You know? I mean, think about it. This was before you had the guys on the front and the guys on the back that template had not yet happened. So you're just seeing all four of them and wondering who is who and what is what and what is going on here. Yeah, this it came out at, in January probably of 77, in very early 1977. So it's like before, I think before punk rock was really a well-known kind of entity or like really in the much of a thing i think in the media you know where where a vast amount of people knew about it so you know this is i mean it's almost it's almost a punk rock record it's it's something especially you look at the cover it's like what the hell is going on here there it's it, it it had to have been so interesting you know and it felt like everything about this band was creative. This album has went on to, I feel, be one of the most influential albums in history, even though it seems like a lot of people don't know about it. Like, for example, if if you were to tell most Ramones fans that didn't see the documentary The End of the Century, The Story of the Ramones, Johnny Ramone states that the guitar riff in the KKK Took My Baby Away was inspired by the riff and He's a Whore. So it just shows how this album, like you've heard the phrase, the comedian's comedian, right? Well, Cheap Trick is the band's band. And I think this album is the reason for it. What do you think about that, Jeremy? Uh, I thought it was very interesting that when I started getting into Cheap Trick, you know, it was like the early mid nineties. And that was right when the grunge slash alternative rock scene was taking over. And, you know, that, that was when Cheap Trick was put on a pedestal. And I, I thought it was really weird and interesting that all of those type of bands held them in such a high regard because, I don't know, it, it didn't really fit to me. But now it kind of does because, you know, after I got into the band and I was able to discover this dark side of the band. And, you know, you said it best earlier that, you know, this is like this is alternative music for the time. And, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, 
I can see why they appealed to that crowd now, or at least those bands. Agreed 100%. Well, we'd like to thank you for coming on Cheap Talk today and look forward to having you on again. And thank you for everything. You've been very good to us. Thank you. You've always treated me very well. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of fans out there, a lot of listeners that care about you guys. And uh, I'm glad to be among them. I love what you and the Rock and Roll Residency do or the, the Ace Fraley Band or the Gene Simmons Band or whatever you guys are calling yourself this week. Uh, <laughs> you you guys are blessed to, to be able to wear many hats in that respect. Well, I'm personally blessed to be able to, you know, because all of those things that you just named i play with my friends you know like i'm not put in a band with another hired musician and you know those are cool too you make friends out of that but you know those are all situations that i was put in with my friends and you know i don't know it just makes them a little different than you know just any other gig because you know when you go on an adventure that big being able to go with your friends is really really cool (laughs) Agreed. Plus, I'm yeah. proud to say I was a member of a band with you for, I think, 10 minutes. Uh, it was the Fuckface 4. Yeah. Which, uh, a band that will live in infamy. And uh... Well, we, we got a band <laughs> photo, so... <laughs> Thank you for putting up with my silliness. Uh, But uh, we love you and uh, look forward to music you guys are going to create and what you got going on. I know that there's something always in the pot with you guys. So looking forward to promoting and enjoying what you have coming next. So thank you for being on Cheap Talk today, Jeremy Asbrock. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Ken. All right. We will see you all in the next episode of Cheap Talk in which one of... Your fellow band members, Ryan Spencer Cook, will be talking about his favorite Cheap Trick album, In Color. See you on the next episode of Cheap Talk. Say, see ya, Brian. See ya, Brian. See ya, Brian. (laughs) Good night now, ladies and gentlemen. Good night now, ladies and gents. Be safe. Be safe. Love you all. All right. See you later, Ken. All right. Be good. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, hello. This is Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to Cheap Talk. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking.